Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, um, you know, the funny thing is uh, we moved here and for the first year that we lived on this farm, we didn't have internet and it was actually really quite nice. No Netflix, no YouTube, no anything. And our children had to learn, like, there's, there's no TV. We're out in a farm now. We got to go outside and play. And so we've kind of been able to carry that on now that we have the, now that we have good internet, we, uh, we still restrict their screen time, just get them outside and get them doing something. No, it's great. I mean, when we grew up, it was so different than the way they're growing up now with iPads and everything. Yeah. Technology. Big, yeah. Big time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, we're trying to do that. We're trying to be wholesome with our kids. We've got the opportunity being that we have a farm. So there's a never ending supply of things to do outside. So oh, yes. I don't, I don't want to hear them saying they're bored because the TV isn't on and they don't get to watch, uh, I don't know what TV shows they have on Netflix now, but you know, they, it's so immediate that kids become obsessed with screens if you allow it. So it has to be regulated. Oh yeah. I, I yeah. missed the days of playing cops and robbers and bike riding and no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, running around the neighborhood until it was dark, and then that was the thing: be home by dark. And so when the sun was down, you ran home. <laughs> when the streetlights come on, that's the time to come home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. And uh, you know, the funny thing is, like, I live out in a rural area, but I'm like in four minutes, I'm in Fort Francis, which is the town I I grew up in. So it's not like I'm really far away from the stores and the shopping that we need. I'm not in the middle, like in we're in the middle of nowhere generally geographically. But my farm is not far away from Walmart, Canadian Tire, oh. Sobeys, all of the other restaurants. Like we have Boston Pizza and Dairy Queen and all mm -hmm. the, you know, the commodities that you would want to go and see. It's a four minute drive, but we live in an area that there's nothing around. So it appears like we're in the middle of nowhere, which is kind of nice. You know what? There's something uh, beautiful about that. Just away from urban life. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, um, after 19 years of policing and living in the town I policed the entire time, um, it's kind of nice to not see every single face of every single person that I've arrested walking down the street all day long. You know, it's, I don't <laughs> see anybody. It's just me and the animals and my family. So it's quite nice. You know, where did you grow up here in Canada and how did you um, get into policing? Yeah, that's a good one. Fort Francis is in the western corner of ontario right along the manitoba border and on the minnesota border so most people don't re recognize that there's a massive part of ontario where people live which is the big part um so that's where i'm from and i've kind of remained here my entire life i went away to trade school when i was a teenager and ultimately that didn't work out and i kind of found myself wandering from job to job very dissatisfied with any kind of nine to five um uh, career. And I'd always been a bit of a chaotic person, always looking for adventure and, and something challenging physically and mentally. I didn't know at the time as a young person that, that I was like that, but that was what was leading me. So in, in my early 20s, um, I discovered I needed to find some kind of adventurous career or else I was just going to be bored and, and, and unhappy with what I was doing. So I applied to the OPP. Actually, what you have to do in Ontario is you have to apply to the, to like a, basically an accreditation where you do a bunch of testing and then you get a diploma that says that you're, you're able to apply to a police force. So I put my resume out to about 15 police forces and I got a few interviews and I had also um, applied to the Canadian Armed Forces. 
and um, the OPP, Ontario Provincial Police, um, because we don't have RCMP in Ontario. We disbanded that in 1909. So I got hired by the OPP. I had been a volunteer as an auxiliary with them for um, about a year before I got the job. And the military called me while I was at police college and I said, no, no, thanks. I've got a job. Um, either one was going to be a cool adventure for me. So that's kind of how I got into it. I needed something that was more than the nine to five. And I'm not discounting that for people. That's just who I am. For you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Made you tick yeah. and made you thrive. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What made uh, policing the choice or looking at the Canadian Armed Forces as a potential option? How come I was not, I don't know, skydiving instructor? Yeah. <laughs> um, that I really enjoyed people. Yeah. Um, so I got to, I was a manager at McDonald's once mm -hmm. for uh, seven years. I worked at McDonald's. I was a salesman for an electrical company and I really enjoyed interacting with people. Mm -hmm. So I, I was trying to find a balance between being around people and helping them and also uh, feeding that, you know, cliche wild side of me, that adventurous wild side. And, you know, as a young man, what's more cool than being a GI Joe? What's more awesome than putting on a whole bunch of battle gear and going and and uh, going out and fighting bad people? Um, I had been a martial artist since the time I was a little boy, and so I had a confidence about me, and I enjoyed fighting, and that kind of all went hand in hand. It sounds arrogant, but it must have been what it was. And I think probably there was also some manifestations of childhood trauma built into that, that I wanted to serve in a way where I could help people in an authoritative manner because of what had happened in my childhood. So that ultimately led me down the career path. I had aspirations of the SWAT team. And if I was going to join, if I had gone the military path, um, I had dreamed about being in special forces. I'm not saying I could have made it, but I dreamt of it. It was an ultimate okay. goal. And you know, dreams yeah. are important. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I think that was the culmination of what got me into policing and, and uh, gave me the desire to serve that way. When it came to policing, you were on the service for 19 years. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. What are the, the lessons learned negatively and positively from the, the process, the, um, the duty that you had? Hmm. Okay, this there will be a, a philosophical part of this and there will be a sort of a reality part of this. Policing has taught me that humanity is beautiful. When I finally gained a maturity in the force, which took some time, it took several years for me to develop a level of maturity to really see human beings for what they are, I found that everybody was crying out for help. Instead of it being just part of the job, I saw that we are all crying out for help. All of us um, have a, a terrible story to tell. All of us have a struggle to tell. And instead of being people that I was working with, and I started to finally develop my own empathy. And I really um, engaged with people near, I haven't been at work for some time. But nearing the end of uh, the last um, 19 years, I really started to empathize with people. And I saw a real deep beauty that people clung desperately to life. And, you know, in policing, you deal with um, people in the worst situations of their life. They don't call you um, happy. They don't call you to, um, you know, explain to them something beautiful in their life. They're calling you in desperation.
and they're clinging to life. They want to live. Even the drug addict and the alcoholic and the person who has just um, injured somebody badly in a car accident, none of them are walking around in this real true nihilistic sense, just throwing life away. So it was that beauty that kept driving me forward. I wanted to work in that. I wanted to help humanity in that way. The dark side of policing comes from within. Police officers as a whole are great people. Um, there's not very many police officers I've met that are narcissistic, um, you know, chest thrumming jerks. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them came into this with the sense that they want to serve, that they want to help people. The problem is that the job darkens you. And we're only just at the beginning of teaching police officers to try to avoid that darkness. So that's the reality check of policing. Police officers go out and they do their job well, as best they can. But it takes a lot of your life away. And I've got to see that in myself. And I got to see that in a lot of my comrades. There are a few exceptions to that. People that are able to really leave work at work and that are able to maintain a really healthy lifestyle and never succumb to the darkness of constantly being inundated by society's poison. But overall, and you can imagine that in any place where you're working, where it's always tragedy, you're going to start wearing it like a suit. And it, it really drags you down if you're not careful. And so that's kind of the dichotomy of policing is police officers are all these neat individuals that come together as a team and they're all beautiful in their own way. And we all work hard together. And, you know, the Ontario Provincial Police, all of the police officers I've met are great officers, but internally we're all struggling because we don't have this camaraderie set up in order to help one another overcome and battle the darkness that sort of seeps into you without knowing all of a sudden 10 years down the road and you've gained 50 pounds and you're jaded and you you look onto people with disgust. And so I think that's that's the negative and the positive that I've seen in policing. What separates the individual or the officer that can leave it at work and maintain a healthy personal work-life balance? Mm. I wish there was a good answer for that, Zach. Um, I thought I was indestructible. You know, um, mm -hmm. I had built myself up that way from a young child, thinking that I was invincible. And then when you put on the suit and you get the badge and you shake the hand of the commissioner and they hand you your warrant card and you go off into the world, you're the protector. And why is it that some people end up very ill and mentally unwell and some don't? I don't know. And I've spoken to a few psychologists and I've read extensively on this and I don't think there is an answer. It's kind of a mystery as to why some people end up unwell and why some and why many don't. Um, and that was a thing that I had to, I had to deeply internalize that and accept that because um, the shame and the guilt I felt for feeling weak that I was becoming unwell was the thing that was keeping me from getting better. It was, it was the thing that was um, making me hide the negative feelings I was feeling. There's just some guys and gals out there that they come to work and they smile and they go and they just work really hard. And at the end of the day, they smile and they don't seem to be phased. And you, you look to them almost with envy 
right? Because, you know, in your mind, you're, you're sad and you're broken and you're wondering what's the difference between you and I, I'm doing the same thing. And I do honestly think I, it's, I, I wish I could answer your question better, Zach, but I think it's a bit of a mystery and it's probably very complex because the human mind is this, it's definitely pan's not you know, it's a pan's labyrinth of characteristics and behavior and environmental challenges and nature and nurture. And I just, I think it's a, a milieu of mystery that just isn't solved yet. When did you realize that darkness is creeping up on you? Was it year five, year 19? When did you realize that something is not right here? The day I began, the day I shook that hand of the commissioner, things were different. I was ready to take on this world, fight the bad guys. I ended up fighting myself. Yeah. The demons are here. Yeah. Um, for me, it was, it was pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, so there had been, I'm still employed by the OPP and I, um, will continue to do something eventually, um, behind the scenes. So I've got to be careful with what I say because I can't really reveal a whole lot, but there was a, there was a court case I was involved with when I sued my employer that really kind of got the ball rolling. It caused a lot of stress in the job. A guy that we were well familiar with in our town got into a bar fight and he had to be removed and we got up to him. He'd been bleeding and got into a pretty big scrap. We got him into the jail cells and as I was locking the door, um, he spit blood in my face and it got into my eyes and my mouth and he was hep C positive. So this is 2013. And um, the the things that I had to go through for the next year um, were awful. Um, I immediately went to the emergency room. I had to take what's called the AIDS cocktail. Um, he was being tested for um, HIV at the time. And my family physician was his family physician. So I got the information immediately that he was positive. So the AIDS cocktail is this thing kind of like um, chemotherapy in a pill bottle. And it just rips you of your immune system so that nothing that's in you can actually take hold. I was deathly ill for weeks and weeks while this was, you know, doing its thing inside me. And um, what ended up happening was I started having nightmares that I gave my wife AIDS and she died. And in my nightmares, the, the guy who spit on me was laughing. And it was just this track. And every night that I went to sleep, it was the same nightmare. And I knew right then and there that, that something was majorly wrong. However, the problem with that, Zach, is that we were still in a time in the policing world where when you were sitting around the coffee room or in the constable's office, the people that were off work for mental illness were being mocked by the people that were currently at work. And I was part of that culture. I knew that if I put my hand up and said I was mentally unwell, that I was going to be considered and labeled the same way that all my comrades were talking about the people that were unwell. And what, and what would the conversations entail? Well, it would be the pejorative language. And I, I don't want to say the language out loud, but you can imagine um, an officer who claims that they have PTSD or depression and they're off work. And you hear things like, uh, they just need a vacation. They need more time off. They want a longer weekend. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's the really awful language being used behind the scenes. So knowing that, I knew that if I said something, that's how I was going to be treated because I watched other officers being treated that way. So I did what most men do, and I just hit it. And as the years ticked by, it got worse and worse. And, you know, I had always been an athletic guy. I was involved in mixed martial arts for many years. 
Um, and everything in my life just slowly started to deteriorate. Um, I turned to alcohol as an escape. I turned to over-the-counter pills to numb myself while I was on duty. I took a lot of extra sick days in order to, um, and I lied the whole time. It was a lie. I'd call in with a sore back or gastro or flu and never did. I was, it was all in my mind. So I knew within a few months that I was unwell, but to admit it out loud required me to be at the lowest place where I would wake up some days and I had wished that I hadn't. And then when my wife and my children were slipping away from me and I, w and I was really seeing, excuse me, I was really seeing my life fizzle away and nobody knew, you know, it was the classic Robin Williams thing, you know, where Robin Williams is standing on a stage with this massive smile on his face, holding a microphone. And, and the, the caption is, this is what depression looks like. And, and I was living that nobody knew. And so when I, um, when I finally got the courage to speak up, I had to write a letter to my family physician. I couldn't say the words. There was some societally macho effect in my mind that this was going to take away, this was going to emasculate me and reduce me to something other than I thought I was, which was this invincible protector. And that was one of the greatest fights. I, I knew I needed help. I knew I was ruining my marriage. I knew that I was turning into an addict in some way, secretly behind, behind closed doors. I knew that all the drinking was way too much. I was sneaking into my garage after shifts and drinking a couple of beers with pills so I could sleep because if I was going to sleep, I was having nightmares. And so I finally, and I, I want to uh, give a shout out to Chance Burles at the collective again. I've already said this once, but when he was speaking to me, he said, you choose, you chose to finally get help. And I really did. I finally chose to get help because I was about to lose it all. Um, and ever since I've been working on getting better from that. I, I wish I would have done it right at the beginning, but I wasn't set up. And the way that things had been in the policing world, it wasn't set up for that yet. And it's getting so much better now. Is it? Yeah. That's what fascinates me. It's that point where someone decides that I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm calling myself out on my own BS. Yeah. Where did that come from for you? Was that uh, one day I woke up and I said, I'm done. I'm tired of this. I'm writing that letter to my physician. Yeah. I was ashamed at what I had become mm -hmm. because I had some accomplishments in my life that spoke to me like that was what I could be. Like as we speak right now, I've got a, uh, a little trophy beside the computer. It's the uh, Eric Neistead Memorial Award. And it's offered to the most fit uh, police officer in Ontario every year. And I was awarded it once. Mm -hmm. And that thing stared at me on my shelf. And it basically mocked me every day when I was on my decline. Like, what do you mean? Come on, man, you got this. You've done this before. You know how to get better. You know how to be an athlete, you know how to get out the door and go for a run, you know how to exercise. And that and my, my duty to my wife and my children was finally enough to spring me forward. And I hate to say that I had to get really, really deep in my own, my own hole in order to be able to get out. But it was a combination of recognizing that my, me as a person was slipping away. And in doing so, I was drowning the people around me. Darkness gets darkness. And I think 
once we faced it, I mean, again, I have faced it with alcoholism after grief of my mom, all these things. Uh, I was done with life, man. But the yeah. minute I changed, the next day I woke up, I was like, whoa, I lived. I'm here. Yeah. Now I have a choice. Do I repeat what I just did and literally fizzle away? Or do I change myself to be a better person? And, you know, since that day, never touched alcohol again. Was able to build the confidence to create a podcast so we can talk today. You know, there's yeah. levels that we have to go through, but we had to face the shits. Like we had to go through hell and back. I don't think I would have changed if I didn't go through hell and back. I needed hell. Yeah. You know, people have asked me that multiple times. And until recently, um, the answer eluded me. Uh, I want to comment something about um, what you said about your alcoholism. You posted something recently about being three years sober. And I am today four weeks clean from cannabis. Um, I haven't drank in two years. And w when I saw that post, I was like, what, you? <laughs> you know, with this, you know, with this beautiful smile and and how you love canada and all of the interviews you do with all these beautiful canadians you but people don't know that we're all struggling we all have this internal demon every every single person does um and so the question if you could change your past would you that that has eluded me for so long would i go through all of this hell again except and i and i think you know this too the person that you are right now and the person that I am now is because of that. It's the, it's the paradox of tragedy. It's the dichotomy of trauma is that you blossom into something so much greater when you overcome it. Mm -hmm. And if only people knew that it's okay to go through these things because they empower you and they make you stronger. Totally. And so 100% agree with you. I, I had a hard time saying that before. Like what I really go back and and go through that hell and have to claw my way through this darkness yeah absolutely i would because um i was in service to people and though i i lost some of myself in doing that because of the job i was serving people i was saving lives i was doing good and i wouldn't want to trade that for anything and it takes a special soul to do what you guys do so thank you yeah um it is unique. Um, I've never wanted to feel special because I think everybody who is doing a job is serving people. But definitely, um, being a serviceman is definitely unique in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I look back at why did I become a certain person at that time that I wasn't proud of. And you have to go back to, I don't know, when we were young. It's in our body, in our nervous system. Yep. What a great opportunity it is to be here today. Someone helped you. I think it's now your responsibility to pass those batons on of um, what you've learned or the people that have helped you and carried you along the way. So your yeah. post on a daily helped me. And you don't know that, but it does. And it it's these little things that we all have that just, hmm, I can go one more step, one more step. Yeah. And it's yep. survival. Uh, it's in your body. It's somewhere stored somewhere being human with your mom um obviously my mom was the best thing here and she passed away at 50 she just turned 55 and she had died uh, a few years ago now and and that messes with you it creeps up on you because that was your pillar you are isolated with your dog and what do you do you yeah hit those uh bottles hard yeah well you know um 
I really, I can deeply empathize with you. I lost my mom about four months ago, 61 years old. And she had me when she was a teenage girl. So, you know, it, it's kind of cliche, but we, we kind of grew up together as babies. And I had a, I had to take a long time to figure out what was so special about our relationship. But what it was, was she taught me how to persevere, right? And it has become a beautiful thing for me to reflect on my mother's life because it was tragic in many ways, being that she was a single parent and our life growing up was not normal. It was like you said, uh, I'm not going to compare it to yours in any way because it sounds it sounds uh, very difficult and tragic, but you've blossomed into something incredible because of it. And I feel the same way now. And it seems like I've I've met so many people now, the ones that have had tragedy and trauma in their life exude compassion and empathy like no other. And, you know, it's like that thing. You don't want other people to hurt. And so you want to inspire them to find that spark of life again. You want to reach out a hand and pull them up out of the mud of their own life. And you can't always do that, but you can maybe help somebody, some one person even. And that's kind of why I got into the social media space in the first place was just to try and help somebody. I didn't want people to go through this. I've seen too many officers, you know, shut off their own lights. We're living in a time now where that's just rampant in society. And so people like you and I who have these tragedy stories who've come out the other side, we've learned these beautiful life lessons. And, you know, when you started Mentel, I just jumped on that so so quickly. I thought, this is what we need. This is one of the things that we need. And now you have this incredible codex of men telling other men, hey, it's okay. You know, you might not be okay now, but you will be. And, and there's a way through it and you just got to keep going and things will be better and life will be awesome again. And so hats off to you for that, man. I've um, really been inspired by that. I, I'm so thankful you've shared some of my wisdom. Um, you've shared thousands of other stories on there and it's, it's what the world needs, um, especially in, in, uh, for men. You're right about this lights off with officers. You, you see it left, right and center right now. Mm. what is going on i'm sure it's always been there obviously social media the internet amplified things so you've been there um you know that world what what i don't understand you know we hear things like get the help there's help there's help i think there's i think there's a lot of reasons zach but mm. um one of one main reason i believe is that we're disconnected from community so men feel alone and isolated now. You know, I just saw something really alarming and it shows the statistics of the, and this is going into the military, it shows the statistics of, of the reasons for deaths for military personnel, vets and active mm -hmm. duty members. And as the decades have ticked by from World War I and they've recorded this data to now, the amount of officers that are, the amount of military personnel that are dying from suicide is in direct correlation with the decline of our mental health globally. So I, I think it has to do with our disconnection to people, number one, where we're no longer communing with one another. We're no longer hanging out in large groups. We've lost that camaraderie where it's okay to talk. So I think on myself, and I was afraid to talk to my comrades because like I said, I, I felt like I was going to be the black sheep 
I felt like I was going to be an outsider in my own organization. We go and we fight crime. And then I couldn't go and sit with my comrades and say, hey, man, I'm not feeling so good today because they'd mock me. And, and quite honestly, that's true. They wouldn't mock me to my face. They'd brush it off with, oh, you'll be fine. You know, just take a day off or sleep it off. You'll be fine. I don't feel this way. You know, and the pejorative language comes on. I think for men, one of the things is you feel so isolated when you're mentally unwell. You feel like nobody can understand what you're going through. It's, it's a darkness that creeps in on you. And another part of this, and I, I thought this myself, and maybe you did too, Zach, is I didn't want other people to be harmed by the darkness in me. I didn't want my wife to have to worry about me. I didn't want my kids to know how I was feeling. I didn't want my mom to know. <sighs> no, that our son was hurt. So I hit it, right? And you shouldn't. That's the story. That's the kind of the moral of the story. You shouldn't. The community around you should be the thing that helps you come out and blossom because the community helps you. And when that communities there to help you they're kind of carrying the weight with you right and if we could all kind of carry each other's weight we'd all have the strength to lift each other up and we've gotten away from that social media is one of the problems because we don't know how to curate it properly we don't know how to so many of us don't know how to use it in a mature way because it can be beautiful i use social media now in this beautiful way um that's one of the problems uh we could go down like the conspiratorial rabbit hole which we don't need to but there is a lot of problems but i really think it comes down to community and connection and we're just disconnected you have choices yep I posted it on mentel the other day are you making this a sanctuary or are you not yeah I, you I, I shared that one i yes, loved it a, yeah <laughs> what are you exposing yourself to who are you following you can look at darkness or you can look at light and that's a choice we have that's right. And you know, what's beautiful about that is um, your inner sanctum needs to be beautiful. Your inner sanctum needs to be a place of peace for you. And it's it, it, ultimately, it's that put your mask on first um, saying that you hear so often. Um, if you've got a room full of lights and you start shutting lights off, it gets darker, right? And, and that goes for community as well. And then... Um, I found that the more that I get better, the more the more beautiful and the more harmonious my family is, the more that I can connect with community. And I've been able to create a community around me of like-minded individuals, all kind of inspiring one another and inspiring other people. And it's funny you say like you see something and it inspires you and the person that wrote it doesn't even know. And that's okay. You know, that's the thing about it. If you've got something awesome to say, Say it because you don't know who might be positively affected by it. How do you know how to cultivate and curate a community? How have you been able to do it? And how are you able to be so vulnerable to the interwebs, as Sean would say, <laughs> to be safe, to feel safe, to feel trust? Because we know this you can have 10 nice comments and one negative comment and that will destroy it all. Yeah. Yeah. So thankfully, um, so, okay. I'll go back to the beginning of me on social media. I didn't have any social media ever, but 
as I was beginning to go to therapy and get better, one day I turned my phone on when I was outside in the barnyard with my horses and I just spoke about something that had to do with mental health. And I showed my wife and she said, you should share that. So I started Instagram and I said to my wife, if I can help one person, then I think I win. And then the rest is just a bonus. And within a few weeks, a, a gal reached out to my wife to say, please thank your husband for this. This has really helped me turn my life around and uh, brought tears to my eyes. Like, how could my voice, I'm just small town guy out of 8 billion human beings on the planet. And yet my voice is possibly saving one person. That's a win in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was what, that was the spark. I think the thing that got me there though, was listening to the right kind of people. And I ended up having a candid conversation with Sean Taylor from the collective podcast. And he, he basically, well, not basically, he, he flat out said to me, you got to stop worrying about what people think. You got to just do you, man. And this was a big thing I had in therapy. I really struggled with what are my comrades thinking about me right now? What is everybody thinking about me because I'm not at work? And I really had to ditch that. And I just had to go and do my own creative thing, knowing that there might be somebody out there that is benefiting from it, even if they never tell me. Even if what I write, I never get a single like or heart or whatever you want to say, whatever it is maybe somebody out there has benefited from it. And since that one person has, it's good enough for me. And so I just keep doing it and I do it in my own creative way. And enough people said, you got to stop caring about what people think. Now that's because you got to stop caring about the negative things. You got to worry about people. I think you should care about people, but if they're going to cut you down and, and tell you you're an, a loser or a, you know, other, the other pejorative language for the creativity and the artwork, you got to stop worrying about that because um, to write poetry like I sometimes do and to write the little paragraphs that I sometimes do, in the in the places I've worked, you'd be mocked and laughed at, right? You'd be laughed out of the coffee room if you were a macho guy writing poetry, but I just don't care anymore because I know it's maybe saving a life. And so I finally be, you know, after many, many people telling me to stop caring, I'm finally developing that strength. When it comes to animals, why why is there this connection for you, horses specifically? Yeah, uh, so it's a funny thing. My wife and I bought a farm in the middle of the pandemic, and it was set up as a horse farm before. And so we started boarding horses as part of the farm business plan. I'd never even been around a horse. <laughs> but something interesting happened because I was going through some emotional turmoil. Well, a lot of emotional turmoil. I was at the beginning. I actually wasn't off work at the time. I left work about five months after we got this place. But when I was out with the horses, there was this strange energy I sensed where if I was feeling sorrow, the horses would approach me in a way that was really sensitive. If I was feeling angry, they wouldn't come around me. And intuition and time in the barnyard with the horses kind of started to train me on this. Like, Hmm, there's something about these horses. And, uh, now I know after two and a half years, not like I'm an expert in any way, but after two and a half years of caring for many horses on our farm, um, through the practice of boarding, I have found that horses of, of all animals have a real 
a sixth, a sixth sense almost. They have a way of sensing energy. And so when I started to like do this talking to horses, uh, little mini podcast, these little uh, video blogs that I made, it was literally because I was going out there daily and actually talking with them. It was a part of my therapy. As woo-woo as that might sound to people, it's really true. You put your hands on a horse when you're calm and peaceful and you'll feel them. You'll see their body language change. You go out in the barnyard and you're in a bad mood and they'll just walk away from you. They're basically saying, now nah, come back another day when you're happy. I don't want that negativity around. But the difference with the horse is they don't do that with sorrow or sadness, just anger and resentment. So if you've got it in your mind and you can really see this, and I, I've practiced this and I've seen it myself, and I've seen it with the people that board their horses here and they come to the farm in a bad mood, they're not catching their horse, right? They'll have to get me to go catch their horse because the horse doesn't want to be around them. Um, and so... I realize something and I don't know what it is really because I can't see in the mind of a horse, but they, they sense emotion on a different level than humans do. And I have fed off of that almost as a form of therapy and I've used it to kind of create a neat social media space for myself. There's something about equine therapy or it's a, a rising technique. Have you, have you heard of it? Equine therapy? Yeah, I've, I, you know, people, um, there are hospitals that bring horses in. And they can watch patients on EKG while, where their hearts will settle when they're in the presence of a horse. So there is something going on through equine therapy. And I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me to say that we should get into equine therapy. Um, we have a friend who is training in equine therapy right now. But there's just something about a horse's energy that seems to calm the human spirit. And it's a beautiful thing. It's it's quite a magical thing when you experience it. They're majestic. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. <laughs> um, I I've said it to I've said it online many times. If anybody needs to come hug a horse or be around them, just come to my farm. Just let me know and come here, and I'll bring you out to the barnyard, and you can go have a good time. For the listeners, being out in rural communities, yeah. what has that brought you in terms of peace? And I, you know, does isolation scare you? Um, no, I love isolation. I, um, I don't mind solitude, but farm life has been very interesting. <laughs> so my wife and I both been townies our whole lives. I don't know the first thing about farming, but when this property came up, we just saw it as an opportunity. And when we came here in this kind of weird spiritual way, it spoke to us. When we walked in the barn, I felt something, you know, the barn that we have on our property is 110 years old. All of the timbers are first harvest off of the land here. And by so, some strange coincidence, my family owned this farm in the mid-1900s and then sold it to another family, and now we've bought it back. Now, they were extended family, but they were blood family. So it's kind of neat that it's back in the family, and I had no idea. Um, if, if that's a serendipity in the universe, maybe, maybe it is. Um, but farming has been interesting because you're responsible for it all. So, you know, like... Um, you were supposed to be on my podcast a little while ago. And I came home after being on for four days and my wife was in another city and the sump pit line had frozen and our basement backed up with water. Well, there's nobody to call. You're, you got to do it all on your own. If you stop getting water out of your well, you don't get to call the public utilities to come help you. If the power goes out, you're, you're in on it by yourself, you know? So, um, there's a, there's a, profound responsibility, especially because we have, um, 
some 150 animals on the farm. So we raise pigs and meat birds and we have a whole bunch of egg layers and we board horses and we've got dogs and cats and you don't get a day off. It doesn't. So I've also learned this discipline that I've got to do things no matter what, how I'm feeling. And that has been a real therapeutic modality for me because when you're in the throes of depression and sadness and sorrow and anxiety, if you're living in the city or in town and you've got just the basic responsibility of going to work and living, well, you can throw yourself on the couch for the day. Well, we can't do that on the farm. The animals will die if they're not fed and watered and maintained, right? And the farm will be in disrepair within a few days if we don't properly take care of it. So one of the great things about being on the farm has been this therapeutic responsibility, which has given me the drive to realize that whether I'm feeling bad or not, I can still do things. And that was a real struggle for me for many years when I was quite dark. Um, on a more, on a, on a, on a more uh, philosophical and spiritual way, we've started to be able to live a lot more uh, wholesome lifestyle where we make our own butter sometimes when we get fresh uh, cream, we get raw milk from a farmer. And so we're doing that. I've started to render beef tallow to make my own beef tallow for cooking. Um, so we're kind of getting into the homesteading and we're finding this beautiful connection to nature. And I think our children are really benefiting from it as well. So it, I mean, not everybody can go out and get a farm I and mean, it's just the way it is, but we've gotten lucky enough to have that as a lifestyle. And it's, um, I think if people wanted to take anything from that, you don't have to be a farmer, but going out and getting connected to nature is the thing because that's all it is. We get to be connected to nature more often because we have to be outside for hours each day. And, and we've really found an increase, an uptick in our health overall. And our family is prospering more because we're just outside more. Yeah, we hear that a lot, though, like getting outside, being out in nature. But what has that done for you specifically, your soul? What has it done? Oh, yeah. Well, it's really deepened my spirituality. You know, um, I didn't have a spiritual practice until recently. And I think the farm kind of taught me that. When I said that we walked into that barn and I felt something, I didn't know what it was. But I've said it now in a few videos, and I've had an opportunity to meditate in my barn and to just stand there with my eyes closed. And it's like, it's like you can sense the presence of all the life that has gone in and out of the doors of that barn. And in this way, it makes me feel more connected to the world. Um, so... We also have to take care of the land. If we're not careful and if we don't use proper farming practices and we're not stewards of this small piece of land of, on planet Earth that we own, then it won't do any good to us. You know, you've, you've got to pour your heart and soul into the land in order for it to provide for you. So in that way, it's really deepened my spirituality and my connection to life. Instead of taking things for granted now, I realize that it's a privilege to have this place. It's not my right. It's my privilege to have this piece of land, to own a little tiny chunk of earth. And so it's my duty to give it the love that it deserves. What a beautiful perspective. Before we get going here, Jason, what is something you'd tell someone that is struggling, that's in darkness, that is listening to this podcast today? What would you give them? Hmm. The darkness feels like it's forever. 
and the darkness makes you feel like you are alone because it it, it sense it, it gives gives you the sense of consuming you but the reality is everybody has their own darkness and nobody is alone in this and it takes but a single sentence to realize that you're not alone and that single sentence is i need help and the moment you say that to somebody they're going to say to you okay i got you of all the things i've said about how we talk bad about each other in the police station or whatever workforce you're in you set that aside you take an individual person your friend your mother um an old teacher a doctor a counselor and you just say to them i need help and watch what happens in your life and you will be pulled from your darkness and it's three simple words help. that will get you away from the hell that you think you're in you started raven's chronicles is that the correct? raven chronicles yeah the raven's chronicles yeah. yeah yeah what's that about and uh how can people find you guys? Sure. So John Arshambo, who is the owner and proprietor of Wired Differently Clothing Company, he reached out to me and said, hey, why don't we start a podcast? I think yeah. we could, you know, have some fun. The Raven Chronicles is sort of an idea where we're Odin's ravens going out into the world and gathering knowledge and wisdom to share to other people. And that's the central theme of the podcast is we want to deliver the stories of people who have had their own trials and who have had their own struggles and have come out the other side and now are prepared to tell their story to help others. And so I think that is, like I said, the, I think that's the base premise of our podcast is we, we just want to go out and, and share really unique stories. And like you said, it might not be that we ever get any notoriety for it, but we might be able to help one person with it. And so that's the podcast premise is, we're collecting wisdom to share to other people. Thanks so much for coming on, bro. It's It's been a real honor. I was so nervous, Zach. <laughs> but the conversation just flowed. I really appreciate it.